Good evening, and thanks for listening to this eighth episode of the House of Deputies News nightly podcast. I'm Miguel Escobar in Austin, Texas, at the Episcopal Church's 79th General Convention, which has just concluded its sixth official day, but it certainly feels a lot longer than that. <laughs> um, tonight, I welcome the Reverend Carlos de la Torre and the Reverend Canon Broderick Greer. Uh, the Reverend De La Torre is curate at Christ Church, New Haven, and program director of St. Hilda's House, which is an Episcopal Service Corps program for young adults located in the heart of New Haven. The Reverend Greer uh, serves as canon presenter at St. John's Cathedral in Denver, Colorado, coordinates ministry to 20s and 30s, oversees the cathedral's daily and weekly liturgies, and assist the cathedral's dean with stewardship and development. So welcome to you both, uh, Carlos and Broderick. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Miguel. So uh, a lot happened today. I mean, we're now in the midst of the full legislative sessions and voting. Um, uh, it's really taken over kind of the calendar. Um, and so I'm going to just do a quick skim of what uh, I've seen taking place. Uh, the House of Bishops voted unanimously to admit, or rather readmit, the Episcopal Ch- Church of Cuba as a diocese. So it now will become a part of Province uh, Nine, uh, Province Two. Okay, thank you, Province Two. Um, the House of Bishops and House of Deputies held the third and final joint teaching session, or Tech Talk, on creation care. Uh, we heard from various speakers, including uh, Bernadette Dementieff of Fort Yukon, Alaska, and Archbishop Tabo Makoba, and the Reverend Stephanie McDyre Johnson. Um, the House of Bishops also approved Substitute Resolution A068 on prayer book revision, and so that goes now, that substitute amendment now goes to the House of Deputies. Uh, Also today, Program Budget and Finance submitted their draft budget for the next training, or this training rather, at noon today. So that is a a quick skim of some of the key highlights, I guess, but I want to ask both of you to share, what did you experience? Um, I know you're part of, or you were witness to different items on that list, so... uh, uh, let's get started. So, Broderick. Um, so, something that I was that was I found very compelling was the fact that I was sitting in the gallery of the House of Bishops to listen to the debate on prayer book revision, and there was um, a consideration at that time of the resolution for basically the reunification of the Episcopal Church of Cuba with the Episcopal Church after 52 years of separation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bishop Friday, who is the retired or resigned Bishop of Southeast Florida and a Cuban, Cuba native, um, talked about you know, the difficulty of growing up in Cuba in the Episcopal Church and being 23 years old when the churches parted ways and saying that basically the Episcopal Church had taken a stab to the heart of of the Cuban church. Hmm. Um, But the Cuban church, he said, Fidel has died, but Cubans have refused to die, which was powerful in and of itself. And he got choked up and it was very difficult for him to speak. And then he finished his, you know, compelling testimony 
And then right after that, the bishops had a voice vote and unanimously, you know, approved the Cuban church to come back into the Episcopal church and to join province too. So it was a unanimous vote. It was unanimous by voice, which was amazing. And then, you know, so, you know, I'm thinking, you know, this is awesome. Everyone's clapping. Everyone's happy. Um, And then like two minutes, you know, a second later, the presiding bishop then invites the Bishop of Cuba to come forward and to make some comments about, you know, this momentous time, momentous occasion. She makes her comment, um, says, you know, she can feel the Holy Spirit breathing in this room. I mean, it was very powerful. People were crying. And then as soon as she was done with her comments, the presiding bishop then says, Bishop Griselda, you will now take your seat at table seven. And I just got chill bumps saying that again, because I mean, that, that was so powerful that you know, we have the symbolic moment, the symbolic vote, this compelling testimony. And then as soon as all of that is concluded, she immediately takes her seat, you know, at her rightful place in the Episcopal Church with her Episcopal peers. So that was the golden moment for me today. Wow. That's a powerful moment. And then I also understand that there was also a gathering after their photo mm-hmm. of the women bishops uh, of the Episcopal Church welcoming their new sister, mm-hmm. uh, Bishop Griselda. So, it's, yeah, powerful. Very powerful. Uh, there was also a, uh, in the House of Bishops, I think mm-hmm. at the same time, or very, or very close, mm-hmm. uh, right, after. right after, okay, um, in which... Uh, they passed a is it a zero six eight so it's a uh, floor amendment zero zero eight four to resolution a zero six eight okay it's English in Spanish would be floor amendment zero zero eight nine okay thank you <laughs> great and so go ahead uh, who proposed it what is the yeah. what is the logic or rationale behind it so c- to create the framework I guess is ha- started yesterday um, in the afternoon uh, session in the House of Bishops um, when um, A068, which had been um, passed with amendment um, from the House of Deputies um, and had uh, was on the calendar for the House of Bishops, the moment it came up for debate, I would say at least 30 or 40 bishops stood up to speak, and it was clear that it was a divide, I would say, equal of those in favor of it and those against it. And even within this, these two camps, there, were, there was a diversity of reasoning, whether it was pro because it's just time yeah. um, or because this is something that we've, we've been praying about and talking about and the energies behind it. Um, and on the contrary, those who were opposed to it, whether it was uh, this concern about finances, how much this would cost, to... I think the big reason why this amendment actually came and passed was a question about process Mm -hmm. and how we do things in the life of the church, especially with something like prayer book revision. Um, So this amendment, in many ways, I think is rooted in the work that the committee had done and and the task work had done and the Standing uh, Commission on Liturgy and Music had done. But it was sort of concerned with how, how do we actually do real and good work on the prayer book with revisions. Um, so rather than saying, let's just go ahead and do it, is let's have an honest conversation of how we can do this. In other words, these mandates we have about being inclusive, being mindful of the language of God and the expansive nature of God, 
how, how do we actually live into this? Yeah. Um, and the other piece that I'll add to that is, which made me really happy and brought me great joy, uh, was this commitment, which I think is felt across the board, but it was nice to be affirmed that the framework or the, the shape of the 1979 prayer book, in other words, a prayer book unlike many others that is rooted in the sacramental nature of, of the church, specifically embodied in baptism and Eucharist, that that should be the framework for all prayer books. And I think that's something that I think most of us parents would agree. But having that claim, I think it's powerful because this prayer book is 1979 prayer book was the first of its kind. And I think we as a church of our have affirmed through ELW and, and our the various resources, um, that you know, this will be the future of how we approach liturgy through the Eucharist and baptism. So having that said a lot, I think, helped a lot of people. Uh, and then the final piece of the joy I felt was that you know, this was supported by Committee 13. This was supported by bishops on the floor uh, of the House of Deputies. Um, when the vote came in, I probably heard 10 nays at most. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a deputy, uh, I, I actually am happy with this and because one of the things that was very clear and is clear in this amendment is that there would be uh, hopefully a diversity of people in the task force. So you're talking about 10 bishops, 10 priests or deacons, and 10 lay members. And there's been a lot of talks about who are going to be these 10, right? Uh, not necessarily by name, but who are they representing? Um, and I, I, I pray and hope that the, the sentiment of the bishops, and which I think will be echoed in the House of Deputies, that we want a diverse but yet unified church, um, that that will hopefully mimic this task force makeup. So I'm hopeful. And we shall see what happens. So there's a, a sort of mandate or statement uh-huh. about what the order's uh, representation will be. But is there any sort of language around um, uh, province representation in there? Or is there is that sort of part of the diversity that people are hoping for? That was in the original um, 8068 um, that was Pass with amendment to the House of Deputies, and the first was solved, if I'm not mistaken. That's not in there in in this uh, this version. Um, I th- I think I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm hopeful. Of the reason why it's not in there because I think it's a larger sort of. Uh, I think the the fact that we're saying actually before we even begin to the work of prayer book, we need to have an honest conversation with everyone around the table. So if the task force looks like the Standing Commission of Music Liturgy, well, there are people there that I love and like. Right. But if it looks as a predominant white, middle-aged body, or plus, um, then it's actually failing the nature of this amendment. Right. So that would be just so saddening. So I am, I guess, trusting and hoping in the good faith of our brothers and sisters in this church, the beloved people of God, but um, there is no clear mandate as was about province nine. Um, I'll speak for myself here. I've even thought to myself, you know, what would it look like if there was an amendment from the floor of the house of deputies that required that 10% or 25% were under the age of 40, mm-hmm. especially given, at least in the house of bishops, a lot of the conversations around age and those who actually live into this prayer book being people who may be now in their twenties, thirties or in their early five, you know, five or six year olds, where it will be the ones who would be praying this book much later. So I'm hopeful that that will be done, um, but there is no clear language. Right. Uh, 
probably has a greater chance of this happening in light of the fact that this has been uh, this representation, particularly of having Province Nine absent or present on some of these committees. You know, it has been such a key part of the conversation that's mm -hmm. been happening at, at this general convention. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, Broderick, uh, whereas we, we were talking just before we started, uh, sounds like Carlos is very uh, pleased with this amendment. You're, you're okay with it, but slightly <laughs> less so. <laughs> what is your exact position? <laughs> so I think one of the things that um, is concerning is kind of various interpretations of, of this amended resolution. So the Living Church today mm -hmm. reported that prayer book revision is dead in the House of Bishops. That's how they framed. Um, is this because of the the sort of definite article that it, you know the nineteen seventy nine is the what, what's behind this? It's it's that the language around revision is not as strong. That the comprehensive revision is actually now ambiguous uh, because of this amendment. Okay. Um, and, you know, sitting in the gallery as a visitor at a general convention, it wasn't truly clear to me with Bishop Doyle's amendment and or substitution, as Bishop Curry was calling it. Um, it wasn't clear that revision, as had been discussed during the previous day and previous debate, was actually is actually going to materialize. Right. There will be a task force of 30 people um, to, I guess, collect new liturgical texts and resources and encourage experimentation and trial use. But the budget was cut for this uh, project from 1.9 million to basically what amounts to $300,000. Mm. And so if there's a task force, like how is, how, how is $300,000 $300, going to be stretched over three years over this triennium um, when it comes to, you know, consulting with liturgical scholars, when it comes to travel, when it comes to, I mean, just the necessary things that are required for a project that will define the Episcopal church for the next lifetime. Um, I'll be 40 years old when the next prayer book comes out, if there's another prayer book, if the House of Deputies understands um, the resolution that has been sent to them by the bishops the way that I hope they understand it. Okay. So, I mean, you know, if it comes out in 2030, I'll be 40. I will have been a priest for 15 years. I mean, my life will be completely different. Mm -hmm. um, our church will hopefully be completely different um, in 12 years. So it's, I hope that the deputies read this as an endorsement of comprehensive revision and not as a basically keeping the status quo continuing to just authorize, authorize, authorize texts. And basically the prayer book um, becomes a sort of um, museum item the way it has in Canada and the United Kingdom, hmm. where they've never authorized another prayer book. Um, 
especially in the UK. So they just have the 1662, and then they have all of these supplemental texts um, and books with a prayer book that is not in the language of the people. So that 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 is kind of the concerning and difficult part for me on that is that it's just ambiguous. Yeah. And to me, the ambiguity uh, is real. Uh, and my interpretation of this is that it's, it's, it, this amendment is really to help um, create the foundation and the framework for revision. In many ways, how we did revision in, 19, in the 1970s is not how we're going to do revision in 2000s. Exactly. And so my hope, like Broderick, to an extent, I think we can share this, is that we can share this, that um, there needs to be revision. And my hope in taking a step back is sort of we're taking a step back to launch forward. Mm. So that's sort of where I'm at. And I think that is, there's, a, for, there's enough reasons for me why we need to take a step back before we can launch forward from the diversity of committees overall in the life of the liturgical life of the church to the fact that um, we needed to affirm a few things in order to move forward. Um, just again, I think taking a step back for something that is this important, I think, is a value. So it's sort of why I'm in support of this, and I hope it will pass the House of Deputies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in terms of just for the sake of the people who were not necessarily present uh, uh, at this this conversation, in terms of taking a step back, this refers to. Um, I think I've heard it elsewhere called sort of like a listening process um, and, a, and a, an opportunity to have a discussion about the way in which the prayer book is used currently um, in relationship to all the other uh, uh, alternative sources, uh, liturgy sources. Is that sort of, uh, does that capture what part of what taking a step back means here? Yeah, I mean, they... Basically, the idea is that they will report, this task force will report to the 2021 convention, the 80th general convention, right. um, with their findings in this triennium. Right. Um, does that, so this is the amb- ambiguous part for me, does that then set us back another three years? Do we then get final prayer book revision in 2033 when I'm 43? Right. Or do we get it in 2030 when I'm 40? Um, or do we get it in 2036? It's not clear uh, that 2030 is kind of the goal. Um, okay. Whereas for me, in my reading of the original resolution given to the House of Bishops, it was pretty clear that we were hoping to get this done by 2030. Right. My understanding was that there was a to be a listening process, but also to begin kind of immediately uh, exactly. on, on some actual uh, drafting of mm-hmm. text, knowing that the two could go on simultaneously, or, or imagining that the two could go on simultaneously exactly. and be influencing one another at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so that possibly has been jettisoned, uh, or possibly not. Exactly, so that'll be determined and clarified uh, in tomorrow's uh, House of Deputies. Mm-hmm. So. I don't think it's on the calendar for tomorrow, but oh, really? I, I have to look. Hope it may be because you know this was passed at four 
fifty, so we shall see. I'll give it a glance. Yeah, we're passing around the the, 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 the virtual binder, the virtual binder. Yeah, <laughs> by which all these uh, votes are, are scheduled. I will plug one one really important uh, piece that I read this morning when I woke up by Andrew McGowan, the dean of Berkeley at Yale, mm-hmm. and he's a liturgical theologian and um, basically talked about. The fact that we're not, you know, we can become a little insular when we when we begin thinking about liturgical texts, <laughs> um, and think that, you know, I I heard the nervousness in the House of Bishops yesterday of, you know, are we going to lose Trinitarian language? Are we going to to lose right one? Are we going to lose X, Y, and Z? The historical documents, the Chicago um, Lambeth Quadrilateral, right. da 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 da. And it's like, you know that we have, you know, communion partners and ecumenical partners that have recently revised their, what would be the equivalent of our prayer book, Mm -hmm. the Presbyterian Church USA, with which we have an agreement for Eucharistic sharing, Mm -hmm. and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, with which we have full communion. And um, in my parish, we actually use ELW, Evangelical Lutheran Worship, um, for our 6 p.m. service uh, from time to time. And there is no loss of Trinitarian language. There is no loss of the fact that baptism and Eucharist are kind of the principal sacraments of the Christian life, at least in the ELCA. Um, And so... We aren't doing this in a vacuum, hopefully. I mean, we, we aren't. I mean, liturgical theologians across traditions are having these important conversations. Um, and McGowan kind of raises that mm-hmm. as like, please do not be afraid. Like, our Presbyterian friends, our Lutheran friends, and so many others have have gone on this road before us. Um, and really, in many ways, and not to be pompous, but they have gone there because we went there in 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this cro- this ecumenical mm-hmm. cross-pollination that we cannot take for granted that really has its roots in Vatican II and Roman Catholic renewal liturgically right. in the mid-60s. So it's, it's all connected, mm-hmm. um, and we must never forget that. And one of the things that I think gets lost often in piece of history and how things have changed, but the ecumenical movement it really impacted uh, the 1979 prayer book. Sort of, one can argue that just the reality of the world in the 1900s, post Great Wars, mm-hmm. ecumenical movement has really created. You know, our, our human reality is different <laughs> than were the old those old prayer books. Um, and so I, I think, I honestly believe that we're in an Episcopal church that um, remembers that most of the times, but can forget sometimes that our liturgical tradition is, is living and, and, and alive, not this sort of thing that's been passed down since 1549 with the first prayer book. Um, it's taken different shapes um, and, dare I say, has become more aware of its Catholic identity as a mm-hmm. church. Um, Little C Catholic. <laughs> I would say yes. Sort of, yeah. yeah sort of, uh, through his teeth, yes. <laughs> From Carlos, yeah. And what we have is this sort of, um, this affirmation, um, the sacramental affirmation that, you know, I, I'm so thankful for. And I'm hopeful that we'll 
continue to evolve as our understanding of the sacramental life being known to us in Jesus is, is, is better known. So I just want to throw in here, um, because I've had the opportunity to do these conversations over the past few days, I guess eight, eight yeah. uh, days. Um, we began, uh, began these podcasts with a conversation with Megan Castellan mm. um, and talking about why general convention matters. And specifically, sort of, and we, we discussed that question broadly. Um, uh, and then in, in the sort of center section, talked about the trip to, Hato, to the Hato Detention Center um, where women are being held, uh, asylum seekers, refugees. Um, and while also noting that at the end of the day, as many people have written, including uh, Scott Gunn, what General Convention is really good at, um, or what sort of what seems to, it seems to be built for, is these sorts of internal, internally focused uh, conversations, mm-hmm. such as uh, liturgy, uh, conversations about budget, and so as. Uh, just to describe, I think, kind of the momentum that I'm sensing, at this being my fourth general convention, mm. um, we kind of begin general convention looking outward, um, doing teaching sessions, doing some public witness, and then as the, the voting process and, and resolutions that need to be voted on before the end, as the clock, as the clock winds down, it becomes more and more intense, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways, much more... Uh, internally focused mm-hmm. and um, structural. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that your sense? Yeah, I mean, think about personal finances, people throwing out checks at the end of the year yeah. um, to get those tax write-offs. Yep. Um, considering closely expenses when you get to February or March to get ready for April 15th. Um, we all have these rhythms and rituals around the way we organize ourselves. I mean, the word economy comes from the Greek word for household. How do you organize your household? How do you organize your home, um, your expenses? How do you organize your life together? And sometimes that is outward facing. Sometimes that's inward facing. Um, Hopefully, at its best, it's never either or. It's both. Right. Um, That's the part that I'm trying to... uh, uh, hold on to as we go into these, I guess, last few days is mm-hmm. how do we sustain the spirit and ethos that led us, uh, so many of us, to go out to Taylor, Texas, mm-hmm. and have that spirit and ethos breathe into the conversations also about prayer book revision um, or uh, PBNF uh, mm-hmm. and their presentation of the, the budget. But it, I think that's a tension that just is, that's kind of part of these latter uh, days of general convention inevitably. Yeah. Well, let's end um, just by uh, sharing our, the last 10 minutes or so um, uh, our broches de oro, uh, are, and so uh, again, these are these uh, the the last little bits um, or the last gold touch, I guess. Um, and uh, start with Broderick. The gold touch for me today was talking to someone who knew much more about the Cuba matter than I did, um, who really caught me up on this. 
Um, and to think that our church has the ability to make huge mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the consensus of the House of Bishops was that they're, in the words of Bishop Friday, their abandonment of the Church of Cuba in 1966 was a mistake. Mm. Um, and to see 52 years later that there can be a turning again, um, a reorientation, apology, restitution, um, bishops standing up, you know, kind of extemporaneously and saying, we are committing, and the first was Catherine Jefford Shorey, who said, you know, I'm committing that, or we should all commit that uh, each Episcopalian in the Episcopal Church gives 50 cents so that we can renew our pension commitment to clergy in Cuba mm-hmm. um, who lost their pension as a result of the departure of the Cuban church. Oh, wow. So, and then other bishops started standing up and saying, you know, we, we are going to commit a dollar for each Episcopalian in our diocese to make sure that we replenish their pension, you know? And, and so just the sense that we make mistakes, we can turn, we can change, we can reorient, um, and kind of holding both of those together. Mm-hmm that we are fallible, we are weak, um, we make bad decisions under the crunch, and we make good decisions under the crunch as well. Absolutely. When Bishop Andy Doyle uh, first spoke on uh, his uh, floor amendment substitution, he started with the fact that when he was elected as bishop, he entered a church that was more divided than he had ever experienced in his life before. And that what he had seen in the life of the church from then until now has been a church that actually has become more unified. Um, mm-hmm. And then in many ways can deal with such thing as the prayer book provision because it's, it's health and it's pulse while not perfect and still maybe sinful in some ways and disconnected in others isn't a healthier place. And rather than, um, worrying about do we keep right one or get rid of right one or anything of that nature. It was sort of claiming that let's celebrate the fact that we can, that we're in a good place as a church, Yeah, that we have good leadership and having that reminder was so important for me. Mm. And I think it's very important for a church to look at itself in the mirror and, and yes, maybe there's a few things we need to work on and yet, we are a healthier church than we were 10 years ago. And having that reminder as we said it in something like prayer book revision, um, or even just the, the peace of Cuba, the fact that we as a church are so unified that our bishops unanimously voted yes. Yes. That is amazing, <laughs> given the, the history of the Episcopal Church just these last 15 years. Um, so that brings me great joy. Absolutely. Yeah. The from uh, the discussion of Cuba uh, has brought to mind uh, an experience, and, and and then I'll share 
my brought to there from today a little bit later, but mm-hmm. the, the, it's brought to mind a, a memory that I had when I was uh, in the Episcopal Church in Cuba in 2015. I had the fortune of going as, uh, along with the Episcopal Church Foundation um, to visit churches, uh, the growing churches, uh, the growing number of churches, uh, Episcopal churches in, in Cuba, uh, including um, one. Uh, which was, I don't remember the name of the town, but it was a very rural center uh, in the center of the island. Uh, a church that whose main sanctuary had actually burned uh, down 30 years ago, um, but whose congregation therefore met in the remaining narthex uh, section. Wow. And I have a photo of the six very elderly women who constituted the vestry of the of this narthex church in Cuba and who had sustained that church uh, over the course of those many uh, decades without you know regular clergy presence over the course of the many political turmoils I mean and for me because the Episcopal Church's work uh, or rather Episcopal Church Foundation's work was focused on vestries it was so so delightful mm. to speak with them about things like vestry meetings and how they handle vestry minutes and how they you know and the mundane other aspects of the things that keep us connected into what it means to be part of the Episcopal and Anglican Church and so I'm thinking about them wow. as we uh uh continue, I guess, on this road of uh, voting uh, the Episcopal Church of Cuba into the uh, Episcopal Church here with us through the province, too. Um, And then secondly, just very quickly, uh, I was also struck today um, by the health of the church, um, and I think the health of the leadership of the church and the way in which that filters uh, into everyday interactions. Um, As staff uh, has kind of wound down uh, here, I I spent a significant chunk of today in the exhibit hall and um, was really struck by the spirit of collaboration and Mm -hmm. partnership that is out there. I now work for an an Episcopal Seminary, Episcopal Mm -hmm. Divinity School, um, and it's got this kind of a famously sort of competitive space, seminaries, and yet really the spirit at this moment is more collaborative and seeking partnership mm. and wanting to do uh, things together. Um, and I think that does have everything to do with, um, you know, uh, more of a sense of a abundance in spirit and, and mission, um, less scarcity and, and mm. uh, less competition. And I think that's only, that's only healthy and, and good for us. So that's what I'm feeling today as well. Wow. Well, great. Um, thank you both for, for this conversation. And I guess we'll see how all of these votes go tomorrow. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you, Miguel. Great.